Well, it is great to see you, Providence family. And if you are new with us, uh, we are thrilled that you have joined us. It's our honor. And I pray that this time will be really encouraging to you. Uh, to those of you who call Providence your home, I want to take just a moment at, um, at the start here simply to thank you. Uh, those of you who prayed uh, so diligently, who invited friends last weekend, who served, whether it was hospitality or whether it was for the kids, or for those of you who even changed your schedule and your hour when you are here normally and you either came on Saturday or the first service at eight last Sunday that allowed us uh, to make room uh, for uh, what actually turned out to be uh, a lot of people who wouldn't have been able to fit in just three services. And so um, your sacrifice, your response uh, is absolutely stunning to me. It's so encouraging to me. In fact, when I think about you, and uh, I've actually said this probably four or five times this week as folks asked, what was the most encouraging thing to me about last weekend? It was actually you. It was your worship. It was your prayer. It was your preparation, your inviting, your sacrificing for the good of others. And it made me think of uh, some uh, two verses that Paul spoke when he says this. He says, now concerning brotherly love, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for that is indeed what you are doing. And he says, but we urge you uh, to do this more and more, to excel still more. And and that's really how I feel. Your love is pretty stunning and your sacrifice was stunning. And I really don't have to teach you about love because God has taught you how to love. And yet, as your pastor, God would tell me to echo Paul's words, and that is to excel still more. And with that in mind, next Sunday, we're going to start a new series. It's called Stunning Love. Um, love is noticeable in a world that is so dark. And the greatest man who ever lived named Jesus Christ is the greatest person who ever loved. And he called every one of us who call him Lord and Savior to follow him in such a way that we would identify ourselves that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's actually a list of basic characteristics that were perfected in Jesus Christ, that they were seen in, in him in perfect form of what love actually is. And so what we're going to do over the next two months is actually walk um, one characteristic at a time through that list uh, and see how that was modeled by Jesus Christ, how it was instructed to us in the Bible, um, in the hope that God's going to strengthen our, our hands as friends. And in fact, that's what I hope you will um, know of the series prior to it. And I pray that when we get done with it, that this is going to take place. And that is that your skill as a friend, your skill as, as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, as a worker, as a neighbor, as a person that relates with other people, that it will be improved as we begin uh, to more and more model the love of Jesus Christ. And so with that end, uh, let me pray for us. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we uh, are amazed at the fact that uh, we have it in our language, we have it in our lap. And as we open it, we pray, God, that you would speak through weakness and you, you would glorify Jesus Christ. We pray for all of the visitors, the hundreds of visitors last weekend who came to this place and who heard the gospel. We know that many of them walked out without trusting you. And so we pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts today, that those seeds that were planted of the gospel, Lord, that they would be reminded of those things. Lord, that something would happen in their life this week. Maybe they would be reminded of their own mortality or sickness and they would wonder, where is the cure? What is the solution in life? I pray that you would remind them of what they heard, 
that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sin and that he rose from the dead. And God, we also want to pray for all of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. As we gathered in a room that was safe throughout our time while we were in the room celebrating your resurrection, hundreds of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as you know, lost their life as they gathered to worship and to celebrate the fact that you rose from the dead. And this Sunday, a week later, as many of them uh, perhaps even wondered if they should go, um, the uncertainty, the, the, the uh, grief, the fear of what it means to worship you in places of the world, as it has come over people, I pray, Father, that you would be with our brothers and sisters, your children. We pray, Father, for your grace upon their life. We pray for those who lost loved ones, that, God, that you would minister to them by your spirit in a way that no human being can, that you would give them hope, that you would give them peace today, even as they grieve. And so, God, we pray, God, that you would help us to not be ashamed of the gospel, And if it means that we too must suffer one day, we pray, Father, that you would help us to stand tall and strong upon you. And so would you use this sermon as you have the last several, Father, to inspire us with the idea that there's no reason for us to be ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his son in the faith, young Timothy. And as we read from his letter to that young man, we pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. Uh, we're going to start reading. It'll be the first 12 verses of that first chapter um, as we actually finish the series called Not Ashamed. And shame we've looked at over the last month is this idea. It's that awful feeling that all of us feel from time to time of falling short in front of people whose approval we really want. And it comes in a variety of forms. You can, you can fall morally in front of people. For example, if you happen to cheat on your taxes last month, you may feel guilty right now, but you may not feel shame. But if on the other hand, you're caught, your mugshot is put in front of all of Raleigh for all us to see, now all of a sudden you feel shame. It can also happen when we just fall short, meaning it's not necessarily a moral thing. And maybe it's just like what happened a few weeks ago that I was at a track meet um, and I was uh, on the clock, right? And, uh, and, this, and this girl, she, she, she ran, she came in last by a long way and she crosses over and I hear her say to her friends, I feel so ashamed, right? Well, she didn't do anything wrong. She just happened to be not as fast as the other people running in that race, And yet she said, I feel shame. She fell short in front of people whose approval she wants very much. And then there's another form, and it's the form that we've been looking at over the last month. And that is that when the public ridicules someone and they look at someone and they say, that's an odd person. That's a weird person. That's someone that we don't like, someone that we resist. All of a sudden, when we stand with that person, sometimes we can feel shame because we're going to be associated and also be seen as weird or silly or something of that nature. And so we are looking at this idea that our culture doesn't necessarily esteem Jesus Christ as we do. Many times Jesus is ridiculed and every single one of us from time to time feel the social risk of publicly associating ourselves with Jesus Christ. And the fact is that if that is you today, if you've ever felt that way, I want you to know that you're not alone. Timothy felt that way. And that's why Paul's going to write to him. So let me give you the setting of this amazing letter. It's the last letter that Paul writes in, in, um, what's the last letter he writes? He's, 
he dies at the end of when he finishes this letter. And so let me give you the context. It's absolutely fascinating. So Jesus Christ rises from the dead. And one of the people who resisted Jesus Christ so much was a man named Paul. And Paul, um, and I know some of you are going, no, it's Saul. It's the same guy, okay? We're going to call him Paul, okay? Paul um, resisted Jesus Christ. He was an opponent of Jesus Christ. And Jesus had a mission for him, though. And so what the Bible says is that Jesus Christ, after he rose from the dead, appeared to Paul on a road. And he said, you're going to be my apostle. You are going to be a witness for me. You're going to spend your life preaching to other people the good news that they can be forgiven of their sin if they'll trust in me that I rose from the dead. But I want you to know something, Paul. You're going to suffer significantly in the course of your life in order to stand up and say that you're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And for the next 30 years, that's precisely what took place with Paul. He went through one shipwreck. He went through one stoning and lift. It says three times that he was beat with rods. It says five times he actually received 39 lashes. This man endured cold, homelessness, loneliness, anxiety, In fact, when he gets to the end of his life, he actually says this. He's in a prison cell and he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, he looks down and he can see the scars. And he says, you know what? I got that one in that city when I preached that sermon and those people didn't like it very much. And then I went over here and this is where I was stoned. And so his body is literally riddled with evidence that he's suffered for Jesus Christ. And now he is in prison again, but this will be his last time in prison because he's going to die. At this time, he's not only been sentenced to prison, he's actually been condemned as a criminal and he's been sentenced to death. And he knows it. At the end of the letter, he's going to say, I know that the time of my departure is near. He knows he's going to die. And so here's a man who's in a dungeon cell and every time he hears footsteps outside of his door, He's wondering, is that water or is that the person with the sword? This is the state. This is the circumstances that he's writing this letter. And so and so Paul, what's amazing, though, is that in the belly of this dungeon, Paul has the mission of Jesus Christ and its advancement primarily on his mind. And he knows that it's not going to be carried out now by his mouth because he's going to die. It's going to have to be the next generation. And for the last 15 years, he's been mentoring. He's been discipling someone that he shared the gospel with, led him to Christ. His name is Timothy. He knows that Timothy is one of the answers. It's the next generation. It's the next person who holds their hand out and receives that baton. And he says, now you, I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel as you go about life and tell people about me. But he also knew something about Timothy. And that is at this point in time, he was the pastor in the church of Ephesus. And so if you've ever read in the Bible, Ephesians, that's the letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Well, Timothy happens to be their pastor and he's going through a really hard time. He has great opponents inside the church who are resistant to his leadership, who are, who who actually find in him a great offense. And he had great persecution outside. This is when Nero actually blamed the Christians and was going around seeking to kill as many as he could. And now here is a man named Timothy, and he's timid. He's discouraged. He wants to quit. He's feeling ashamed. He's feeling small, very small. And Paul knew that Timothy drew courage from his courage. 
And he knew that Paul's death, he knew his own death would literally shake an already timid Timothy at his core. So what does Paul do? He takes the last moments of his life. Instead of thinking about himself, he's thinking about the mission. He's thinking about Timothy. And he writes his very last letter that goes to one man. And he exhorts this young man to not be ashamed of the gospel. And this is what he says. Starting in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, a teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So why is it that we as a congregation are not ashamed? We find a few things within this own passage. They're so encouraging. The first thing is this, is that we are not ashamed of Jesus who has given us eternal life. Eternal life is a great gift for people that are going to die. And let me just remind you of something you don't want to be reminded of. And that is that you and I, we are all going to die. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to plan for it. We don't like to be reminded of it, which is why funerals are really weird to us. They always feel weird. There's a part of the funeral, of course, that we know that we're honoring a life that was created in the image of God. And there were things that were done in the time that were honorable. And so we want to remember those things. On the other side, there's significant loss and grief and pain because a loved one, someone that we cared about, is now gone. But you know, there's another thing that causes a general collective strangeness to exist in a room over a funeral, and that is the evidence of our own mortality. We're going to die. And so what's interesting is when you go to a funeral, there's just a collective sentiment. We don't voice it regularly, but we all think it. And that sentiment is this. It's not supposed to be like this. There's been a law that's been written upon our heart where things like justice and beauty and love have been written. So we know it when we see it. And when we get to a funeral, everything in the funeral, it violates everything that's within our heart of what it's supposed to be. We were not created to die. We're going to die because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Well, what's interesting is that we all inherently resist death, which is why we spend a lot of time seeking to preserve, preserve self, preserve youth. We buy all kinds of products in order to try to stay young, to distract ourselves from the reality. And yet those products, they do not, they do not extend life. We all know it. And yet there's something about that self-preservation when we, when we feel uptight about things that, that causes us to, to run from death as much as we possibly can, even though we know we can't run. So here's the question. What in the world could be so valuable that Paul would endure such suffering unto death when Paul too had a resistance in his heart to dying? You think about this. All he had to do was recant. One thing I didn't tell you was his crime. His crime was he was preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. That's it. He could have said, forget it. I don't believe it. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. All right, let him out. No, he said, no, I am not going to recant. I've seen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and these eyes cannot unsee what they have seen. And so this man named Paul, what in the world could be placed in front of this man that would allow him to suffer so much? And he tells us in verse one, He says, you know what? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm that by the will of God. And this is why it's according to what? A promise of life. A promise of life. This is what this means. Is that Paul had found in Jesus the only hope over something that he too dreaded. And that was death. He didn't want to die. And yet he found in Jesus the only hope that he had ever seen, ever heard of on the earth. It came from Jesus' own lips when he was on the earth, when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. You see, what's interesting is this, is facing death without a promise of life. And most of the people in the world, that's exactly what they do. They face death without a promise of life. What it does is it feels like that we're walking through a forest just like this, where there's injustice, there's trees. We can't see the end, and so it's scary. And when you walk through a forest and you get lost in a forest, I don't know if you've ever been lost in a forest. I have. And what you do when you get lost in a forest is you begin thinking about yourself. How am I going to live? How am I going to get myself out of here? Self-preservation becomes king when you get lost and there's simply no hope. But the same thing happens when those of us who have heard that there's a promise of life forget the promise of life. And that's where Timothy was. He had trusted Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus offered him eternal life. And yet what happened to him was this, was that while he's walking through the trees of persecution and, and suffering and pain and people's deaths and another funeral and another crisis and another crisis and another crisis, where it just felt like he's walking through a forest of trees, he forgot the view that he one time had where there's a shelter up on top where if you'd simply keep walking, there, there's, there's, there's a place of rest that's coming. There's a place of hope. There's a place of light. There's a place called heaven. So what does Paul tell him? He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Don't be, don't be ashamed of the testimony about him, the gospel about him. Why? Because Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life through the gospel. We're all going to die. But Jesus has removed the ultimate sting for those who trust him. And that ultimate sting is eternal separation from him. You see, Jesus Christ, for those who believe in him, have turned death into the tunnel through which we enter heaven. This is why Jesus has a monopoly of hope when it comes to a funeral. 
It's why he has the monopoly. He owns it all. You know why? Because you can't give eternal life. You can't give the promise of eternal life unless you possess. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he became the authority of eternal life because he's the only one who possessed it. He rose to die never again. And so when we trust in Jesus Christ, he extends that promise of life to us. Now think about this for a second. Why are we not ashamed? We're not ashamed because we all are going to die. And yet for those in Jesus Christ, there is a promise of life. There's a promise of eternal life. And so we're not ashamed. But for those of you, let me ask you, have you ever trusted Jesus? Those of you who know you're going to die. What is the promise that stands before you that gives you hope as you walk through this earth? The gospel of Jesus Christ says this, is that if you trust in Jesus Christ and his accomplishments, that he died for you and he rose from the dead, that he gives you the gift of eternal life, that when you pass from this earth, you pass into heaven where you will live with him forever, forever. So we're not ashamed of Jesus who has given us eternal life. Second, we're not ashamed of Jesus who has cleansed our conscience. He's cleansed our conscience. Notice what it says in verse three. He says, I thank God. <laughs> Have you ever asked the question? Maybe you should right now. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard this, so you haven't asked it. How in the world could a man like Paul, who's been condemned to death, gets done with his introduction? And the very first thing he says is, you know what? I'm in this prison cell in this dungeon and I keep giving thanks. I'm just so thankful for what God's done in my life. I'm, so, I'm just a thankful man. I, just, I, I thank him all day long. It's just, I'm just so thankful. How in the world can a man like Paul be thankful when he's staring death in the face? And this is how he tells us how he says, it's because I have a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience. And you say, well, this man must have been just this amazing man without any, without any sordid past. But that's simply not the case. In his first letter to the same man named Timothy, you know what he says? He says, I was once a blasphemer. That means I cursed Jesus Christ. He says, I was a persecutor. I mean, I sought to inflict suffering upon people who love Jesus Christ. And he says, and I was an insolent opponent, literally an audacious, rude, brazen, rough, hard opponent of Jesus Christ. This was his past. And he's the one who says, I have a clear conscience. This is amazing. He's saying, look, fear doesn't crash over my head when I recall my past. How is that possible? How is it possible for a man like Paul or for a person like you or me I think about my past and I think, man, there's a lot of reason apart from Jesus that I should be ashamed. There's a lot of reason where I would say my conscience is not clean. And yet here he is, this man who has a pretty amazing past that was pretty messed up. And he says, I can sit in this prison cell and I can go to sleep tonight and I can look in a mirror if there was a mirror and I can say, I'm not ashamed to be you. How does a man get to that place? How does a woman get to that place? This is how. He tells us how. He says, we're not ashamed. You know why? Because God has saved us and he saved us according to his grace, not our works. And he's called us to a holy life, a kind of life that leads to a quiet conscience. Now, I recognize for those of you who call Providence home, you hear me talk about the gospel frequently and you hear me use the word that we've been justified frequently. And I thought again this time, I thought, you know, some of these people are going to get tired of hearing about this, but I'm going to tell one more time. And this is why, right? There's a billion benefits to being saved. He adopts us into his family. He, he absorbs the wrath that was directed to us. He forgives us. There's a lot of things, but when it comes to shame and a clear conscience, 
The facet of the diamond that we call salvation, that most influences a soul that is clear, a conscience that is clear, is actually justification. Romans chapter five, verse one says this, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, a clear conscience. I can rest at night. And this is what happens. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died on a cross after living a righteous life. Then he was buried in a grave. He rose from the dead and he says this. He says, if you believe in me, if you put all of your trust in me, he says, not only will I take away all your sin, but I'll give you my own righteousness. So sometimes word pictures help. So I want to show you three different buckets and they each represent your life and my life. Okay. So the first represents sinfulness. We look at him and go, yeah, I know what that's like. We feel dirty. It's because we are dirty. We are sinful. And this represents what the Bible says. Look, there is not a single one of us has a heart that's been pure before God. Okay. The second bucket is when we trust in Jesus Christ, what happens is he forgives us of all of our sin. What that means is he removes all of our dirt, all of our shame, all of the guilt, everything that we had done before that was opposed to him. It was in rebellion. to him. He takes all of that away. And some people think that's the gospel right there. He gives us a second chance. He cleans our bucket so we can try again. That's not the gospel. Now, the third bucket is justification. And that's where he fills up the bucket of our heart with his righteousness. In other words, when we trust Jesus, he doesn't leave us at a zero sum. He doesn't say, oh, you had this huge debt. You had all this dirt in your life. and I simply took that out. No, he takes all of that out. And then he extends all of Jesus' righteousness and he drops it into our hearts so that we are absolutely full with his righteousness. And this is why we can have hope. This is why we can, we can die a death just like Paul. This is why we can have a past that is so messed up just like Paul. And we can sleep at night and say, I have a clear conscience. This is why. It's because there's an enormous difference that's made to be assured in the darkness of our own imperfection that we have a righteousness outside of ourselves. That in Jesus Christ, our best days, we do not add a single dime to our account before God. And on our worst days, we do not remove a single dime from our account. That our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus sits next to the Father. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And this is why we're not ashamed. It's because every single one of us, every one of us in this room, we have every reason to be ashamed of so many moments in our life. So many thoughts, so many behaviors, so many words. And yet because of Jesus Christ, because he forgives and then gives his righteousness, we have a clear conscience. Let me ask you, have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Jesus Christ with your soul? You do this by admitting that you are a sinner, that you believe, you, you, you place your trust in Jesus Christ and his accomplishments and you confess him as Lord. And the Bible says this is what he does for you. You can do that today. You could do that right now. But let me talk to those of you in the room who are believers in Jesus Christ and yet who do not have a clear conscience. Some people in this room need to believe in Jesus and some people need to believe Jesus. Believe what he said. He said, I already forgave you. So why, why is it that you keep living as though you are a shameful person? Why do you beat yourself up all the time when I've already forgiven you and I've already made you not just zero before God, but absolutely full of all my righteousness. 
See, we're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Because he's taken every one of us who have death before us and he's given us a gift of life. We're not ashamed because every one of us are so messed up at the core. And he's not only forgiven us, but he's made us right before him. We're not ashamed. And we're not ashamed of Jesus also who has made us family. This is another feature you find here. You see, unlike Timothy's mother and grandmother that we read about in verse five, who had this strong, amazing faith, they were teaching Timothy's, he's growing up, young, young Timothy about Jesus Christ and how to live for him. Timothy's dad did not believe. We read this in Acts 16, verse one, that, that he did not trust Christ. And as a result of that, Timothy grew up in the home without a Christian dad, without a dad to show him the ropes without a godly man to say, this is how to forgive somebody. This is how to take responsibility. This is how to reject passivity. This is how to share the gospel. This is how to make a stand. This is how to be kind. This is how to love. Oh, he had godly women, but he didn't have a godly dad in his life. And you have to understand something about the culture in which these guys are living. And it happens to be the same today. It's it's an honor-shame culture. Not only for the individuals, but for their families. You you just don't shame your family. You honor your family. And what that means is this, is 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 that you never shame the family and you never let anybody inside to divide your family. Because if you divide the family, then the family is shamed. So any diversion from the family's faith, any diversion from the family's kingdom or for the family's Lord and God, well, that, that, that's a big problem. All of a sudden, Jesus comes into this culture, and you know what he says? I have come to set a man against his father. Now, you have to understand the context. He's not saying that he came, that his mission on earth was to cause family strife. That's not, that's not his mission. His mission was to save sinners, to die on a cross, to rise from the dead. But this is what happens when that happens. is some people in the family trust Jesus Christ, and some people don't. And in this culture... When these families, when they had one or two members and they trusted Jesus Christ, it shamed the family. It shamed the family in that culture. We have, when I say we, we. Those of you who give, I don't know if you know this, but you actually support about 135 different mission partners. Many of them are church planners around the world in places that that you and I aren't even allowed to go to. And there they are, they're preaching the gospel. We got an email this, uh, this month from one of those partners who was sharing the gospel and a young man came to faith in Jesus Christ. His dad hears that he came to faith in Jesus Christ and he orders him to come home at a different city. And he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And in the email, he actually speaks of the fact, he goes, and this is what he's saying. He says, I don't know if I'm going to be thrown out of my family. I don't know if I'm going to be killed by my family. But I know that this, this, is, this, is, this is what I mean. He says, but I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to stand up for Jesus Christ. This is what is happening. Now, why am I saying this in this sermon for these guys? This is why. Because both Paul and Timothy lost almost all of their family and social circle of what they knew before Jesus Christ in order to follow Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus did in order to make up for that significant loss? 
Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 says this. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You know what that means? It means in Jesus Christ, for those of you who call Providence your home, look at your family. Some of you, you left your family in order to follow Jesus Christ. There are places in the world where where to follow Jesus Christ means that you are thrown out of your family, but what you inherit in Jesus Christ is not one mother, but a hundred. Not one brother, but a hundred. He pours out his spirit to where, look, we become a family of faith. I want you to think about this family. This family is made up of men and women. It's made up of every ethnicity, every race, every age, every economic background, every social background. We become one family together. And when that family that we see in heaven, in the pages of Revelation, when, when it appears to be seen on the face of the earth, where this room begins to grow more diverse, not only in race, but ethnicity and gender and age and everything else, then what happens is this, is that Jesus Christ is glorified and we recognize the significant benefits that we've received in Jesus Christ. We've received a family. You see, we're not ashamed of Jesus Christ for he's adopted us into this family. This is why Paul says in verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child, this isn't his son. This is his son in the faith. This is someone that says, look, I know your dad can't fill this role, but I'm going to fill this role for you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to inspire you. So friends, we're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I pray that if you were given a mic, you could stand up and say, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. For he has given us eternal life, a clean conscience. He's given us a family. So what do we do with this? I want to show you a few applications here. They're all found within the text of things that Paul, after explaining to him, look, this is why we shouldn't be ashamed. Then he tells him, now here's some things that you can do to fortify your courage as you live on the earth. The first is this, is let's stir up passion for Jesus' mission. He says in verse six, fan into flame the gift of God. What he's saying is this, Timothy, I know that your batteries are low, but they are about to take my head, which is exactly what took place. So I'm telling you to fan into flame your love for Jesus Christ and fan into flame your courage to stand for Jesus Christ and fan into flame your resolve to participate in God's mission around the world to glorify his son. You see, Providence, we all have a part because we all have a gift. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. You know what it says? It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And for the past two years, we've been talking a lot about planting three different seeds in three different soils. The first is we want to plant our lives in the church. What that means is that we want to invest in our local church by praying for the church, giving by engaging in a life group, by coming to worship, by being a part of the mission, engage, using our gifts to serve the church. The second is to plant the gospel in our city. That means that you and I would be out sharing our faith, looking to build relationships with people so that we could tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus in the hope that they would trust Christ and then we would continue to meet with them to help them to grow in Christ until they are able to tell someone about Jesus Christ. And then we're talking about planting churches in the world. Right now, you support 35 different church plants around the world. Little lighthouses in villages and cities and cultures around the world, many of which have no gospel influence from the West or anywhere in the world. And we're supporting these these amazing people 
in order to build churches. We want to pray. We want to go see them. We want to go. That's what these mission trips do. We, we send the team to go help them, to, to, to serve them. We've seen so much faithfulness and we've seen fruit. We've seen amazing things. And I exhort you to excel still more. Say, well, where do I start? Start with your heart. You always start with your heart. Fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame your love for him, your courage, your resolve, and then find a place to engage. Let me ask you, for those of you who are not in a life group, would you consider this year engaging in a life group? For those of you who lead a life group or who participate, would you, would you resolve with us to fan into flame the passion of the people in your group by taking two or three minutes each time to say, hey, has anyone here had the opportunity this week to share the gospel with somebody or to engage in a spiritual conversation? Why? Because when you share those stories, even when you say, man, it didn't go so well, you have a family that you've been adopted into there to encourage you and to pray for you. Would you use your gift to serve in some area of the church? Would you, would you invite a neighbor to your home to build a relationship with them? Maybe this year you'd have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Would you consider praying or even going on a mission trip? Let me give you one opportunity. In January, at the very beginning of January, we need to send 60 people from Providence to Spain to actually do a VBS. There's literally hundreds of missionaries around the world that are converging in one place where we can encourage them and they're bringing all of their children with them. And so Providence, we've said that we're... We'll take these ages and we're going to lead a VBS for them. Would you consider, would you consider going? So let's fan into flame. Second is let's consider our resources in Jesus. He says, look, he goes, look, God didn't give us gifts. And then he didn't give us a spirit of fear to negate those gifts. What did he give us? He gave us power and love and self-control. He gave us power through his spirit to change things. He gives us love. 1 John 4, 18 says that perfect love cast out fear. You know what that means? It means if somebody tried to harm Tabitha, I would jump into the fray without thought of myself because I love her. Be the same with you with your children or somebody that you love. Listen, when Jesus' glory is tossed to the curb, God's people on the basis of love forget about themselves and jump into the fray. Perfect love cast out fear. And self-control, what's self-control? was the kind of control that Paul showed to write such an absolutely coherent, lucid letter when he knew that at any time he's going to lose his head. Have you ever thought about reading 2 Timothy through the lens of somebody writing it under overwhelming stress? How can you do that? Because God gives us control. The last is this, is let's accept the suffering. Accept the suffering. You know what he says in verse eight? He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the power, for the gospel, share in suffering. You know, to the average observer, everything about Paul was shameful. Have you ever thought about that? Just imagine Paul being in prison. Hey, you trust Jesus. You can be like me condemned. He probably has a big crooked nose. He's got scars all over. There's no wife and kids outside wailing for him, missing him. He has no wealth, no health, no freedom. He's misunderstood everywhere. And he says, Timothy, I need you. I need you at this point in your life to take this baton. You see, Paul goes out with his head high. He says, Timothy, look, I don't have all those things. I don't have the wife and the kids and the health or the wealth or the freedom, but I'm not ashamed. And this is why, because I know whom I believe and I'm convinced that he is able to hold me fast. 
And I'm passing this baton to you. My arm is extended to you right now. Put your arm out and take it. And you know the good news is Timothy took it. And he passed it on. And that person passed it on. And passed it on all the way through the generations. And you know who now holds that baton? Us. You and me. And the question is, what are we going to do with it now that we have it? Providence, there are a million reasons in the world and a million things to be ashamed of, but being associated with Jesus Christ is not one of them. It's not. So may the Lord grant us courage to stand and say, with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, a grace that gives us courage And now, Father, I pray that as we have the privilege to observe people testifying in baptism, that they are not ashamed to associate with Jesus. Would you give them encouragement and would you give us courage to make a stand? The fact that we love you, we love your son. We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen.